Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing. I am Tim McIntosh and I'm here with Sarah Jane Bentley and we are here to discuss Othello, Act 3. Welcome back, Sarah Jane Bentley. You have arrived back home from Canada. I have and I've had a lot of time to read and fall in love with the play even more this week and I think Act 3 is maybe the best one yet. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. So I I picture you, um, I've kind of created sort of a caricature of your Englishness. You are sitting on your couch with a cup of Earl Grey tea and you have a blanket and a cat and like 15 Shakespeare books around you, um, kind of like spread out on your coffee table, your tea table and your your couch. Is that... Is that the right picture? Sans cat, I think you put it right. What do the British have against cats? Why don't you have a cat? <laughs> no, it's not a British thing against cats. <laughs> I, I, I just don't want to be uh, the lady with a cat <laughs> or <Yeah>. 15 cats. <laughs> um, a, we talk about literary tropes. That is a bit of a, a trope, isn't it? A, a, perhaps, yeah. From yeah. Victorian fiction. I don't, I'm not sure what I picture you. I picture you in a, a, a rustic log cabin that you built with your bare hands. That's, um, I like that picture. And it's not actually um, inaccurate. It's just, we used drywalls. We didn't use like rough hewn lumber, but we did, we did build it. My friend Andrew and I built it with our bare hands and a lot of tools. And it was, <laughs> Yeah, I think I was recording close reads during that building process, and I think we finished it about a year and a half ago. So I've been living in this place for about a year and a half. 
I don't know if you've ever tried to move into a place that you were kind of like building or doing a major restoration or refurbishing of. It is so unpleasant. It's like the order of your home, you just take for granted. What It's such a wonderful thing to have order and to know where things are and to turn on the faucet and know that you'll get hot water and cold water. Those things are so wonderful. And it wears you down when you don't have, when you don't have those things, when you don't have order. And I remember the moment that I almost snapped in the middle of building this thing. I was, I was asleep and there are these little bitty brads about the size of your fingernail that have these two barbs that kind of point up for them. And you, you use them to kind of like secure things into wood. I won't go into too much. And one of them, I had so much chaos around me, tools and nails and screws and like little saws. Anyway, middle of the night, I rolled over on this little brad and it woke and like these two barbs just jab into my shoulder and, and I sit up and I'm like, ah, what is this thing? And I had this barb sticking into my arm. And I remember at that point, I was just like, I'm done with this. I am so done with like building around me. I'm ready to just be living in my place. So, I think you could have easily fitted into Shakespeare's company of actors, you know, when they were rebuilding the globe. My wildest dream, honestly, my wildest dream would be to run with a repertory theater, to actually be in charge of a repertory theater of somewhere between six and a dozen actors we choose and develop our own material and we're all like full-time theater people and we just do pro we just live project to project that is my wildest dream come true so yes i think i would be happy in shakespeare's troop because he didn't he sarah jane he like he didn't just write for the theater but like we've talked about he acted and he was part of this kind of tribe of men that that put on shows, that developed their own material and put on shows. Mm. And you're right, he lived and breathed it in the same way that Othello lives and breathes war and seems a little bit uncomfortable almost in a situation of peace and domesticity. So, yeah. One of the things that's sort of shocking when you stand back from Act 3 is that at the end of Act 2... Othello is so in love with his wife, Desdemona. Um, she is so in love with him. And then in act three, we have a scene that in essence, Othello goes from complete trust. And there's a, there's a, if what feels like a really strong bond between he and Desdemona. And by the end of the scene, he's threatening to kill her. It's he's threatening so to kill sad. her. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? It is heartbreaking. In Act Two, we had the the proclamation and the herald declaring Othello's pleasure and announcing a time of feasting. They have another interrupted wedding night that's broken by the drunken brawl that Iago has created where Cassio stabs Montano. And now, in one scene, you're right, Othello goes through this journey where he first says to Iago, I do not think that Desdemona's honest. Mm. the next thing he says is I think my wife is honest and mm. I think she is not and then by the end of act three scene three he says damn her lewd minx 
and says that Cassio must die and that he'll take care of Desdemona himself. And yeah, yeah how, how did we get here? Yeah. What happened. Part, part of what's alarming about it is that it happens in real time. And I, at least as an observer of the play, I find it completely plausible. Mm-hmm. You know I mean? Whereas if I had a friend who loved his wife and in 30 minutes went from loving and trusting his wife to flipping, I would say, what is wrong? That's an, it's an implausible scenario. But for some reason, and I, I think the reasons are within the play, when it happens with Othello, I buy it. I buy that he has completely flipped. Do you buy it also? I do. And I think maybe we need to ask a few more questions about the nature of Othello's love for Desdemona in order to to really understand why it's so plausible. So if you had just got married that night and then in the middle of the night, the Duke or I don't know, let's say the president of America or whoever's in charge of the Pentagon called you up, Tim, and said, oh, it's your wedding night. Never mind about that. You need to go and fight um, on a battleship um, in some island Mm -hmm. in a remote part of the Mediterranean. Would you take your wife with you? Would you Mm. accept the commission? (laughs) It's It's a crazy thought. I, I would just, oh my gosh, I don't even want to think about that. I don't want to go in the first place. If, and if I had to go, like, do I, do I take her or not take her? I mean, the first question is, how safe is the place that we're going? Is there going to be a place where it's completely safe for her? And the safety of Cyprus is very much in doubt, isn't it, at the beginning of the play? Because yeah. we know the Turks, the Ottoman fleet is a formidable force against the Venetians, even though the Venetians, is a, they're a very powerful naval um, republic. But I just don't, I don't think Othello's decision is wise. And mm. if we go back to the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy, mm. it says that when a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business, but he shall be free at home one year and she'll cheer up his wife, which he has taken. <laughs> what a! <laughs> I love sometimes, you know, I typically think of the Old Testament law as sort of like, um, how do I say it? Like statements of prohibition and very seldomly are they attached to kind of um, the benefits of obeying those prohibitions. So, you know, honor your mother and father is one of the rare ones that it will go long in the land. Yeah. There's a promise attached to it. And I love hearing the promises that it will cheer his wife up. He stays home for a year. I'd love that. I love that. But boy, Othello does not do it. Does he? No. And I think that's a problem. And the decision is made so quickly. He immediately accepts the commission and his main object in act one is to reassure the duke that being married and having desdemona with him is not in any way going to detract him from his military duty yeah so the, to to try and get to the heart of your question about why is it believable that othello would flip like this i first needed to understand 
what what got him into this situation uh-huh. in the first place? And before we started talking today off the air, you said we might have missed something in Act Two. So uh, there's there's a big historical backdrop that we we didn't really cover. Can you can you tell us about that? Um, you mentioned a poem that King James the first wrote about a battle. I think we were wildly sort of generalizing when we spoke yeah, about the uh-huh. history play. And in fact, there's a, there's a very powerful reason why Shakespeare decides to set Othello in 1570. And he chooses the backdrop of Christendom, the, Christ, the Christian allies versus the Ottomans in the Mediterranean fighting over Cyprus because from 1571 to 1573, there's this really famous naval battle, which was initially a huge win for Christendom. And then in 1573, it resulted in a truce where the Christian allied forces were so busy disagreeing with one another that they they were compromised and they um, made peace with the Ottomans and gave them Cyprus. Mm. The moment at which we enter the play, Cyprus is is in Venetian hands. And Shakespeare decides that the victory that Othello's fleet wins is a kind of fragile one, which has been given to them by the storm. They didn't really defeat the Turks. The weather did. Yeah. And in one sense, I was wondering whether that might be a a little bit of a poetic reference to the Spanish Armada as well of um, is it 1588? The Spanish fleet was defeated by Sir Francis Drake, but they had the distinct advantage that the weather was on their side. And of course, there's a um, maybe a, a Christian spin on it that that God is on their side. And yeah. The weather is favourable. So what's interesting is that James I had written a poem about the Battle of Lepanto, which was republished in 1603 when um, he is crowned. So I can just read you a little bit of the poem. And this is um, the Battle of Lepanto is the the naval battle that you were referring to, this kind of like three-year naval battle between the forces of Christendom and the forces of the Ottomans. Is that right? Yeah. I, I would love to hear a little bit of that poem. It's the Venetians against the Ottomans Um, and they're fighting for territorial rights in Cyprus. So what's so interesting is that Shakespeare takes that Italian origin story from uh, Geraldo Cinthio's Hecatomythi and and then kind of layers it with the Battle of Lepanto. Mm. So we have Shakespeare, instead of trying to compete with James I's poetic rendition of the Battle of Lepanto, Mm. Shakespeare creates a poetic metaphor for the battle where we see Othello himself as this territory that's, that's being contested because Othello is a Christian convert. And by the end of the play, it's unclear whether or not Iago has been successful in getting him to renounce his baptism. But yeah. the poem, yes, it says, I sing a wondrous work of God. I sing his mercies great. I sing his justice herewithal, powered from his holy seat. And then it goes on and says, which fought was in Lepanto's gulf betwixt the baptized race and circumcised turban Turks recountering in that place. And the poem goes on to describe the battle. 
boy, that, that, that vision of, how do we say it, international relations, I, I just think of how Shakespeare's audiences would have viewed a character like Othello. And I think, mm. tell me if you would think this way, I think that um, the more steps on the stage and we learn relatively quickly that he is, he's Christianized, but there's got to be suspicion with, with that naval battle as the backdrop, there's got to be sort of suspicion. Like, is this guy on, is this guy on our side? Is he, or is he on their side? Regardless, we really need him because he's this incredible general. He, he's like Coriolanus. He can produce the, the victory. What a complicated character to place on stage for Shakespeare. Isn't it so complex and challenging? I, I think one thing that maybe we miss as moderns is the total faith that the Duke, who I've been calling the Doge of Venice, has in Othello Paris. It was absolutely customary for the Venetian military to hire foreign generals. In fact, it was very unusual to have a Venetian in charge of their own fleet. So there's a long history of this. And um, my husband and I often travel to Venice and Florence. And one of the things that he likes to do is take me to see the monuments to the condottieri, who are these famous mercenaries who fought on behalf of the Florentines and the Venetians. So Othello is an incredibly noble and powerful character who um, is, is he's so far above the cheap racial taunts that Rodrigo hurls at him. Um, yeah. The Duke has total faith in him as a warrior, which is why he's in act three, so dutiful and so torn. That's why when he gets married, I think really he should have renounced his duties as a mercenary and taken up his duties as a husband, but he doesn't, he tries to do both. Sergeant, could he, I'm gonna acknowledge that what you say is yeah, that would have been the right choice. I'm trying to think of uh, could Othello have done anything else? I mean, if he renounced his mercenary activities, what is he gonna do? Is he gonna like start a violin making shop? You know, is he gonna become a chef? I mean, <laughs> this is part of the problem of the play is that w- this man breathes, eats, sleep, war. And he has taken on this wife who has been, for the most part, locked into a domestic world. And to have him, yes, for the sake of them being together, it would make all the sense in the world for him to renounce his profession. But what is he going to do? Well, he could spend a year... Cheering up his wife. I mean, the- <laughs> a la de- the Deuteron- how do you say it? Deuteronomical law. He yeah, could- yeah, exactly. He could do, do what he's commanded to do. The thing about these mercenaries that was so incredible is that they were absolutely loaded. The uh, bounty that they would win in these battles was phenomenal to the extent that um, 
Colleoni is, is a, a famous mercenary in Venice and there's a huge statue of him cast in bronze. And he commissioned that statue himself and wanted it in St. Mark's Square in Venice. Um, and it's actually, that was refused and it's in a kind of, it's a different square that it's in. But that's the kind of wealth that those mercenaries had. So it would be no problem for him to take a year off <laughs> and just live on some of the spoils and then maybe yeah. go back to war. I mean, comparing him to Coriolanus is really interesting as you did because just like Coriolanus, Volumnia says Coriolanus is bred in the wars, that she's yeah. brought him up um, fighting. And we know Othello has been fighting from the age of seven on the battlefield. So as you said, he really knows nothing else. And going back to your original question about how can he flip like this in one scene, is it that he takes a kind of military strategic approach to a problem that can't be approached in this way? And of course, there is no problem because Desdemona is not unfaithful. Right. But he frames it in a, in a, in a militaristic way. Mm. Um. That frame dooms everything almost from the beginning. Yes, and he thinks, I need to make a decision quickly, and then I need to act. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it, it... The more you kind of peel back the layers of the play and understand where these characters have come from, the more that you see the conflict is not just inevitable, but the conflict will be like two trains meeting on the same track. Mm. They're, they're heading toward each other because they're just Desdemona and Othello just come from such completely different worlds. And within those worlds, like smaller little kind of spheres that just have so little acquaintance with each other that once the kind of um, the infatuation of like their otherness for each other kind of burns away, it does seem like conflict is just going to happen and it's going to happen at with, with grave, grave stakes. Well, even as you said, your, your metaphor of the the trains colliding on a, track is 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 appropriate and even without Iago this sort of demonic controller who's pressing the accelerator for both of the trains then probably you're right they're still they would still have collided at some point and then take that fragility of, of their newborn relationship and put it in the context of Cyprus which was so dangerous and mm-hmm. hostile and um, you know, in this kind of state of uncertainty where it was hotly contested by the Turks and the Venetians. And, and that is a really difficult place from which to start right. a marriage. Right. Um, I was observing Iago in Act 3, and he has this, <laughs> this brilliant little trick that he pulls a couple of times where he offers a little seed that could blossom into jealousy and he offers it. He lets Othello notice it. And then Iago steps back from it. So um, top of act three, 
Iago and Othello approach and they see Cassio speaking to Desdemona. And what is it that, that Iago says, why does he leave so guiltily? And then, oh, well. And, and so he just kind of plants this seed in Othello. And then a little bit later, he does the same sort of thing. He, he casts doubt upon Cassio's character that he is the kind of person that would, that would woo your wife. But may it, no, but he would never, he could never do that. He could possibly do it, and he would never do that. And then he kind of falls to defending Cassio. And it's a brilliant bit of kind of planting with one hand and then letting Othello's imagination just begin to run rampant. And then Iago almost gets to play Cassio's defender and protect his own reputation in the process. That he, you know... Iago would never suggest such a thing about a fellow brother in arms, but he has just planted the seed. He has just cast out in Othello's mind. It's a brilliant kind of two-step dance that he does. And he's planting weeds. He's right, planting yeah. He's forms that are going to prick Othello and keep him in a state of restlessness. And, and the, yeah, the two-step is that... Uh, faltering that he uses where he he creates doubt by echoing, by suggesting, by not finishing his sentences. He sends Othello into a rage by refusing to tell him. Uh He says, oh, Uh I'd better not reveal to you what I think because it might upset you. Yeah. And creates this tantalizing attention around, you know, I have a secret that is about you, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. Uh Yes, Iago is like Satan, isn't he? He's the accuser. He introduces Mm -hmm. a hermeneutic skepticism. He undermines the marriage vow. He says, hath God said, does Uh he love you? And poor Othello, as you say, because he, like Coriolanus, was bred in the wars, he, he has no other counsellor he has no other example to look to and he has just that one means of uh, of addressing potential conflicts he has to <laughs> he has to seize it and act, act immediately um yeah yeah every everything in this play is structurally built to just cause massive explosions between these different in these different relationships it is terrifyingly beautiful and speaking of architecture do you know do you know in act three scene two the really short scene yeah yeah it's got to be one of the shortest scenes in in shakespeare's canon i just kind of glazed over it, but there's something there isn't there there's a fortification. So Othello, this is the morning after his second interrupted wedding night with Desdemona. He gets up, goes out to do his duties because he's really good at his job. He's really professional. This is why he's the general of the Venetian army. And he goes to see the Arsenale in Venice, which was the the center of shipbuilding in the world. These guys in the Arsenale in Venice could build a galleon in 24 hours, which is unbelievable. Oh, wow. 
And so Othello goes there and he takes his gentlemen with him and they go to look at the fortification, which is famous for being the first neoclassical structure in the West. And mm. I was really interested in this. I've been there, I've seen it, and it's called the Porta di Terra. It was built in 1460. There are eight statues outside, all allegorical. And so that morning, Othello leaves his bride and goes to see the statue of Bellona. And I wondered if you remember who Bellona is from. I don't. Bellona is the goddess of war. (laughs) So this idea that Othello is bound to two women, the goddess of war and the goddess of love, and he can't serve both. Yeah. Letting one or the other is really compounding his situation. And the irony, of course, is that it's Desdemona who's accused of infidelity, when really here it's Othello, in a way, who's being unfaithful. Boy, that image of him being wed to wives, Mm. that's pretty vibrant. Yeah. No, I did not know that about the Statue of Bologna. See, Sarah Jane, it pays to be a nerd sometimes. I am such a geek, Tim, I confess. <laughs> no, that's what the sh- I mean, like, we are geeks. We're listening to, we do hour and a half segments on a single act of a Shakespeare play. If that doesn't qualify us as being geeks, like, what does qualify us? I, I would say... Cats, I think, is the only other thing that would really qualify us. Exactly. I mean, this week I've, I've probably spent far more than an hour and a half reading Act 3. The, the, <laughs> you know, um, one thing David said in, in, when we spoke about Act 1 was, um, you know, where's Cyprus? And it really bothered me that I didn't know the answer to that because often teaching young people, you get all kinds of questions and I really feel a responsibility that I need to be able to answer them. And I think for parents and teachers teaching young people, especially boys, if they love military history, sculpture, Mm. mausoleums, Mm. stories about mercenaries, Renaissance paintings by Tintoretto, Veronese, Titian, um, people being flayed alive, then, you know, give them the full picture of the play and don't limit it. Now we're doing literature because this isn't just literature, it's history, it's poetry, it's it's right. history, it's art, and, and all of it coheres. And then you get a sense of, oh, right, this, this play is so meaningful. It's not all ambiguous. Yes, really right. something to be discovered here. And it's another vote for doing, it's another vote for seeing, well, there's two things that I want to say. Yes, when you have young men, I think especially, um, who might have a hard time falling in love with a language the first time they get acquainted with it, to actually have a stage production in which the fighting and the act, the physical action is there present in front of them. That is, it's, I think, crucial for getting younger people to like lean in a little bit closer to the poetry of it. And then also the classroom, like what we're doing now is a form of a classroom, can take us deeper into 
these kind of historical things that might have been might have been known by Shakespeare's audience, but now, 400 years later, they're a little bit lost to us. And so we can dig in a little bit and kind of see that the, that the meaning of the play, there are aspects of the play that go a lot deeper than what registered to us, you know, in 2019. And this is where I think sometimes reading literary criticism can, can lead you down the wrong track because it... It, it undermines um, cultural capital. and how, how so? By suggesting that the important question to ask is not what does the play mean or what was the context of its production, but even why are you asking that question and what is it about your situation now in the 21st century that causes you to read the play in the way that you're reading it? And that isn't really the interesting question to ask, I think. So, <laughs> I, I'm, I can't decide whether or not to like unleash a barrage against contemporary literary criticism. <laughs> I know that's not the purpose of the show, but I was joking around to Heidi and David off the air a couple of weeks ago that close reads and the play's the thing. Oh, I hope this doesn't sound too pompous. I'm just going to say it anyway. We all ask ourselves, why does the show work? You know, what, what exactly is it that we're doing? And we recorded a really good episode of, um, I think, The Odyssey. And I, and I told them off the air, I said, you know what I think Close Reads is? I think it's the, I think it's the literary criticism degree that people wish that they had had. Because of the reasons that you just said, there, there's something about, how do I say this? It seems to me that the first task of a literary critic is to help the reader of the literature to love more and to see more fully what it is that we're reading. So it, I consider it our task, Sarah Jane, to like help people fall in love with Othello a little bit more. I mean, it's such a it's such a hard play, it's such a difficult play. But as you're as you're talking, you're expressing you've fallen in love with the play even more the more you're reading about it. And I, I kind of think that a lot of my acquaintance with contemporary literary criticism almost does the opposite. It almost kind of helps sell a a critical lens, which makes us move away from the piece of literature. Do you think it's because that critical lens is essentially the critical lens of postmodernism, which is asking us and our children not to look for connections, but to look for conflicts and fragmentation? I do. And I, I think also, I think the postmodern kind of sensibility is I think it's consumed with one thing and almost one thing to the exclusion of everything else. And that one thing is power. Everything is about power. And I think it comes from, I mean, I don't, now I'm going to get nerdy. I think it comes from kind of, um, it's downstream from the kind of Marxist lens that all human relationships are sort of fundamental inequalities of some sort or another. And those, those fundamental inequalities are are power-based. Um, 
And so I think that that lens, so if you take power as the primary um, objective of all the human condition, and you look at Othello and Iago, and you look at a Moore on an English stage, or you look at um, an Italian woman on, you know, who's, who's married to a Moore, what you see instead of the kind of like the complexities of real human culture, you tend to see one particular kind of problem, which is those problems associated with, with power. And it just has a flattening effect on literary criticism that I find so disheartening. It makes me really sad. Sometimes it actually makes me angry, but most of the time it just makes me sad because these books that we read are just so gorgeous. They are so, they're so edifying. They're such a, um, I walk out into the world after reading Othello and like the leaves are just a little bit crisper and the air smells better. I mean, we're talking about a play that's really difficult, like, play with a kind of demon character, Iago, right in the middle of it. And yet for me, the world grows more vibrant after having read it. It's so heartening to hear you talk like this because, um, yeah, it's, it's taken me many years to, to try and shake off some of the damaging, poisonous effects of cultural Marxism on literature, where essentially the story of Othello itself is nothing more than a backdrop for whatever cultural theories you want to impose on it today. And tomorrow it will mean something else, and yesterday it meant something different. And um, you're right, all we're trying to do is use the play as some kind of implement through which we impose power. Um, yeah. Iago, as a, as a character, is we spoke a bit about Machiavelli as well, is, is a good example of that impetus. All of all that drives Iago really is the desire for power. Mm -hmm. And that's not what drives Othello. Othello is a servant leader. He serves mm. the state of Venice. And it's so sad that he's tested by Satan and he fails. And I've been reading yeah. him this week in parallel with Job, Adam, Christ, all three men who are tempted directly by the devil. And then that also led me to think a bit about the Odyssey, which you've been discussing with Heidi and, yeah. um, and how Othello, if we, if we kind of, as you said, try and build together the bricks rather than smashing them down, building Othello into that picture of a grand narrative of a hero who's on a quest mm -hmm. is a really helpful way of, of reading him, I think. And I'm sure lots of your readers listeners will know the story of Odysseus. But did you see any um, connections between the Odyssey and Othello? I do. And I, I, I mean, the most obvious one is um, high stakes adventures on the seas. You know, mm. um, I think Odysseus's quest is to come home and he faces all of these physical trials that prevent him from getting home. And I think with Othello, it's a similar sort of quest, but the chronology is reversed. Othello begins at home with Desdemona and he's called out to sea again to face these different 
trials and his trials are not, how do I say this? Most of Odysseus's trials are external to him, the Scylla, Charybdis, the Cyclops. And it seems like most of Othello's are very much internal to him. They're, they're planted though by someone who's a supposed friend. And, and I, for the most part, Odysseus's trials are not planted by his men, his crew. Um, mm. That's that's a really astute observation. That's right. Yes, it's um, that's interesting. I I didn't read him as I didn't read Othello as starting out from home. I saw him more as starting out from a foreign land because he yeah. a more in the court of the Venetians. So he's a bit like Odysseus in um, Phaeacia. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the difference between Odysseus and Othello is that it seems like Othello doesn't really know where his home is at all. Yeah, now that you say that, Sarah Jane, your point is well made because when Odysseus gets home and puts things right, he banishes the suitors, he's back with Penelope, there's this sense that the kind of, there's a harmony that transcends just his relationship with Penelope, just his relationship with Telemachus, just his family. It it extends out across Ithaca. And it does feel the only bit of home that Othello has is with Desdemona. But as we've mentioned, that relationship is so ripe for conflict. You're so right. And I was thinking then also in terms of Coriolanus. Coriolanus even though he loses his sense of home, it's because he rejects it. It's not because yeah. he have it at all. He, he leaves his wife um, in a state of anxiety on her own and goes off to the wars. Othello should have done that, but I suppose didn't consider Venice his home. And so he tries to take his home with him. Uh-huh. And he puts it in, in grave danger because Cyprus is a very uh, violent place. But the, the other thing that I thought was interesting in, in terms of Othello and Odysseus is that Desdemona is a lot like Nausicaa. She's captivated by the story that Othello tells in her father's house. In the yeah. Odysseus stands up over dinner and recounts his adventures to Alcanus. And of course, the difference is Odysseus doesn't marry Nausicaa. He knows that's the wrong decision. Mm. But Othello essentially does. <laughs> that's right. That's real. That's exactly right. That's a great comparison. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny because we we like to give Odysseus a hard time for sleeping with Circe and with Calypso, but he does deserve a little bit of credit for not sleeping with this younger woman who clearly is completely enamored with him in the same way that it appears that Desdemona is enamored of Othello. Mm. Othello. I think it should be credited to Odysseus for showing a little bit of wisdom there. And it's a way that Othello, as much as we love Desdemona, it w- I don't think that he exhibited wisdom in marrying her. It's, it's hard, right? Because I think we're meant to fall in love with Desdemona. Everyone else on stage has fallen in love with her. I think we're meant to see this is an incredible woman. But it's just, it probably is not the woman for Othello. 
or a fellow isn't ready yet for marriage. Full stop, right? It's not, if he's going to marry someone, it should be Desdemona. He just is not ready to get married full stop. Because he won't relinquish his allegiance or his betrothal to Bologna, the, the war goddess. And he doesn't relinquish it until Act Three, where he gives us that, do you remember that terribly sad speech where he says farewell to all the things he loves about the war? Um, uh-huh. Is it in Act Three, Scene Four? Um, it might be good for us to read it. Um, yes, he says, Oh, now forever, farewell the tranquil mind, farewell content, farewell the plumed troops and the big wars that makes ambition virtue. Oh, farewell, farewell the neighing steed and the shrill trump, the spirit-stirring drum, the ear-piercing fife, the royal banner, and all quality, pride, pomp, and circumstance of glorious war. And so it's not until Act 3, Scene 3, that he renounces his allegiance to war. Yeah. Problem is, he then, a few lines later, renounces love and takes up allegiance with vengeance instead. So he dismisses war. And at that point, I was thinking, great, you've done right. it. Go home to Desdemona. <laughs> right, right. And go and ask her what she's thinking. But uh-huh. he, doesn't, he then renounces love. And then he says, Black vengeance, you take up residence in my breast. Mm-hmm. In the way that Hamlet does. Remember, after Hamlet has spoken to the ghost of his father, and he says, I'm going to wipe my mind clean and thy command yeah. all alone shall live within the book and volume of my brain. And both of them swear themselves to vengeance. Yeah. So it's so, it's so close that moment in Act 3, Scene 3 for Othello when he renounces war. There's hope there, but of course, Iago is there poisoning his ear and pushes him in the wrong direction to vengeance, not to love. There's a part of that speech um, his mentioning of kind of the reward of ambition. Othello, and also we see a little bit from Cassio, sees reputation as, their reputation as kind of a path to immortality. Is that a Greek idea? I I think it's certainly a Greek idea. I I wonder if it's... um, I think it's even bigger than that. I, I think it's, I think absent of a God securing salvation, I almost think it's the only kind of like, it's the most ready at hand form of salvation to have our name spoken by our children and our grandchildren and their children for our, for our exploits. I mean, just to have our names recalled kind of like in the halls of posterity that happens with, it, it seems to me like it happens with so many human cultures that have ind- kind of like existed in life sort of independent from each other, that it makes me think that it's like close to a, a, a universal human desire. That like that Maybe. salvation by something like, Maybe not reputation, but reputation is the best that I can do right now. It does create a difficult paradox for Cassio and Othello because both of them separate themselves into their 
immortal reputation and then their bestial physical self, yeah. which is, is a very difficult, divisive way for them to live. And of course... Because their bodies are going to break down? No, I think because a man's identity is not decided by what everybody else thinks of him. Yeah. A man's identity is, is greater than that. It's, he's made in the image of God. Yeah. So that kind of, and this is the problem that Macbeth and Lady Macbeth make as well. They think that, that shame is guilt. They think that uh-huh. you, can, uh-huh. you can subcontract your guilt onto somebody else. And so long as publicly nobody knows that you've done it, then you're not guilty of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it works in the opposite direction as well with reputation. So, so long as everyone speaks well of you, and that your, your reputation in society is good, then in a way, who you are is, is almost detached from that. It's, it's as if, well, Iago says it well. He says, he that filches from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches him makes me poor indeed. Mm. But what about the idea that a truly good name a truly virtuous man cannot have that virtue stolen from him. Right. It can't be taken away by someone's opinion. Right. So Cassio and Othello have put themselves at the mercy of public opinion. Uh-huh. That, that would be my criticism of them here. And then I think as well, the problem is that Desdemona doesn't understand this code because of the way she wades in and starts to try and intercede on Cassio's behalf. Because she sees the problem chiefly is like, this is how I see Desdemona's interpretation of the conflict between Cassio and Othello. It's a relational problem. And I think it's more than that for, for Iago, excuse me, for, Cassio and Othello. I, I shouldn't say a relational problem. It's a friendship problem. The friendship has been wounded. The friendship can be repaired. But it seems like there are, there's a bigger structure around the friendship between Cassio and Othello. And that's the part that it's harder for her to see. And we can't blame her for that. She's, I think she's probably never been in a war zone before. And for right. her to understand that the reason Cassio has been deposed by Othello is, is actually a professional reason in the military context of Cyprus. Is, that is a hard thing for her to fathom because you're right, she mm-hmm. sees it on the level of, here are two men who are really good friends and um, I want these brothers to be reconciled before the sun goes down. So her intentions are yes. good, but she, she hasn't understood the context, which is that Montano is a high-status leader in Cyprus who has been stabbed in a drunken brawl in the middle of the night by, by Othello's lieutenant. And so Othello has to publicly show that he is, is punishing Cassio for that misdemeanor. So he can't simply forgive him immediately. Yeah. I have a feeling that this subject of reputation, um, 
I, I think that the Christian idea of salvation has so permeated Great Britain and the United States. I think even among people who don't um, adhere to any sort of Christian conviction, but I think it has sort of, how do I say it? Um, diminished that drive for the preservation of one's reputation. Cause we, and I think also we just don't live in an honor society anymore, a, a society that kind of traffics in an honor code. I think we have a much more, I think for better and for worse, a much more individualistic sort of um, way of viewing our value in relation to our neighbors. And th- this is one of those things that I think, especially to students, it's easy to miss the power of um, honor in a military, especially in a military culture. Yeah. And as you were saying, the, the problem with living in this society that prides radical human autonomy uh-huh. is that we can't even agree on what good is. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's no longer what God says is good. It's what whoever the most powerful person is says what is good or uh-huh. whatever the victim says is good. And then we're, we're stuck in this constant dialectic, this conflict. But, you know, what really Cassio and Othello should do is humble themselves. They're supposed to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. And cast their cares upon him. And, and if they did that in the play, then Iago would have no ability to manipulate either of them. Yeah, tell, what would that look like? If they humbled themselves before God, Iago and Cassio, what would that scene look like? Well, for a start, one thing that bothers me about Cassio is that I don't, I don't think he ever really repents of what he did in the street brawl. He is only concerned about repairing his own reputation. He doesn't uh-huh. apologize to Montano. He doesn't repent of his ridiculous actions. Um, and I wondered as well whether Shakespeare had been reading proverbs when he wrote this play, because we keep getting proverbial wisdom, and we quoted some of it in previous ep- episodes. But, I mean, Isaiah, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Proverbs, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Now, mm. okay, Yago uses wine as a poison to corrupt Cassio. Yeah. But Cassio never repents. And neither does Othello. Othello doesn't ever repent of his anxiety or his mistrust of Desdemona. Uh-huh. And so he has no rest. He has no rest in the play. Boy, that's another similarity to Macbeth, isn't it? Macbeth, after he goes on his kind of murderous rampage, he can't sleep anymore. And isn't that partly Iago's effect on uh-huh. only Othello, but also Cassio and Desdemona, that their sleep is interrupted? And how does... How does Macbeth describe sleep? He gives us this amazing description of it. It it knits up the raveled sleeve of care. The death of each day's life, Uh sores of bath, balm of hurt minds, 
great nature's second course, chief nourisher in life's feast. And so no wonder Othello goes mad. Right. He, ne- he doesn't get a good night's sleep. In fact, right. Othello said, um, Iago says, not poppy nor mandragora, nor, nor all the drowsy syrups of the world shall ever medicine thee to that sweet sleep. Mm. And what's worse is that because at the same time, Iago's also pushing Desdemona's virtue to an excessive limit, and he's got her pleading the case of Cassio, Desdemona also says, my Lord shall never rest. His bed shall seem a school because she vows to Cassio that she will continually plead his case to Othello. Wow. Sarah Jane, are you teaching Othello this year? I, I am fully convinced that this is a really important play to study because I, I did enter our conversation with this view that Othello was quite a horizontal sort of play in terms of its cosmology. But I totally changed my mind about that. And I think, you know, as Flannery O'Connor would say, it is long in depth. And and what, what are the things that, so unpack that statement for us. Um, did you say flat or horizontal in its cosmology? That's a, that's a beautiful phrase. Tell me what you mean. So what would, how would be a good way to explain this? In comparison to Macbeth, the metaphors and the imagery of Macbeth are often very lofty. He talks about the stars, planets, um, and his, his vision is sort of, you know, it's, it's above the world. We've got pity like a naked newborn babe striding the blast and tears drowning the wind mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the sense that what Macbeth does in Scotland has cosmic proportions. But in Othello, because Iago from the outset is poisoning the language of the play, it's brought down to this bestial level. And we have references to goats, toads, Barbary horses, ewes. And you see how Othello's language becomes more and more debased as a result of Iago's influence. And I was Uh fooled into thinking, I suppose, that that meant that there was no vertical movement in the play. But I think morally and ethically, there really is. Do you think part of what kind of tricked you is that feeling of claustrophobia that we all acknowledged at the beginning of the play? Is kind of maybe it's like maybe the the predominant feeling of the play is one of claustrophobia, and so if we we feel claustrophobic in the play, our eyes are reluctant to shift upward. I think so, and that's the Iago effect that he sort of shuts yeah. heavens, makes you think they're not even there. Um, whereas when we're trapped inside Macbeth's consciousness in that play he's also cabined cribbed confined bound in but Mm -hmm. Macbeth's imagination seems so huge (laughs) in comparison yes right does that make sense in a way that makes perfect sense and the thing that's so difficult that's part of 
is that there's nowhere in the entire cosmos that he can escape from the evil. Uh-huh. Because that entire cosmos is, it becomes his evil imagination. Uh-huh. Whereas, yes, you're right, with Othello, he seems to be, at one point he talks about being like a toad stuck in a dungeon. Uh-huh. Um, the speech that really comes to mind is the one where he starts t- comparing, he's comparing his consciousness to the Pontic Sea right at the end of Act 3, Scene 3. Do you know that? Yeah, yeah. What do you think of that speech? I'm actually going to, I'm looking at it right now. There it is, 453 for me. Never, Iago, like the Pontic Sea, whose icy current and compulsive course ne'er feels retiring ebb, but keeps due on the propontic and the hell is spot, even so my bloody thoughts with violent pace shall ne'er look back, ne'er ebb to humble love, till, till that a capable and wide revenge swallow them up. Now by yon marble sea, in the due reverence of my sacred vow, I here engage my words. There. And there, that is an incredible speech because... There's so much to admire about Othello here, that his, his determination, his constancy, like the sea, um, the problem is it's the wrong direction. He's now, he's now allied himself to vengeance. If only he had allied himself to love, this is the kind of lover he would be. He could love yeah. a owner like the ocean. Um, but because of Iago, that the, mar- the heaven has become like marble. It's become hard. You know all those references in the Old Testament to the heavens being like brass, being shut off. Yeah. And so that, that the prayers aren't answered. And that is the effect of Iago, that claustrophobia. And, and the, the irony that when Iago kind of echoes this vow that Othello is making, he echoes it by calling to the ever-burning lights above in the next lines. Witness you ever-burning lights above, you elements that cling us round about. Witness here that Iago doth give up the execution of his wit, hands, heart, to wrong it of Othello's service. So Iago, he's so awful, swears by the heavens. He swears by the heavens. Isn't this the most terrible prayer, though? I mean, rhetorically, it's rubbish. And this is a man who never prays. Right. Witness you ever burning lights above. I mean, that's the stars. That Shakespeare doesn't conceive of the stars like that. We know. <laughs> um, you elements that clip us round about. He, Iago has no idea of even what the cosmos means. Iago yeah. only chaos. Yeah. There is, I think, and I think we should start wrapping up on this, Sarah Jane. I think it's, it's really there's something going on here that Othello is hearkening to the ocean. And in so much ancient literature, the ocean is, it is, it is the kind of geography of chaos that we must kind of extract ourselves from to achieve harmony. I mean, Mm. God broods over the face of the deep and brings harmony from that. I mean, over and over you can see in ancient literature that there's this, there's this sense, and we can see it in Poseidon in the Odyssey, 
Poseidon wants revenge upon uh, Odysseus, and he's constantly wreaking havoc upon him from the seas. So I think it's that that Othello hearkens toward the oceans and the seas is sort of a forewarning of chaos to come. That's good. I like that. It ties in with the classical idea. I'm generalizing. I'm not, I'm not an expert on classical philosophy, but wasn't there a belief that the world came into being because of tensions or conflicts and harmony between the four elements? Yeah, right, right. So, it's, it's really interesting that Shakespeare here in the Renaissance uses classical ideas like that. But I wonder, in terms of biblical imagery, uh-huh. the sea is it's a baptismal flood that cleanses the world and brings about newness of life. So mm. I'm not sure that biblical idea doesn't seem to fit at this moment, does it? That, that no, it's kind of like, where is he, it's, it's complicated because where is he pulling... Like, where is he pulling his illusion from? Like, where in, like, what timeline or what kind of, is this a biblical illusion? Is this an illusion to sort of, like, ancient ideas of chaos come from the sea? It's hard to tell. And the the bigger question is, and maybe this is a bigger question about Shakespeare, is um, just how much of his illusions are tying into biblical history? How much of them are tying into classical history, he clearly does both and he clearly has great dexterity in both. Yes, and is he's writing, as you called it before, on the razor's edge and seems to be treading this new boundary where which is essentially the birth of humanism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're right. It's not always straightforward. Yeah, I found Act Three really grueling. Um the two bits of comic relief that we get, the musicians and the clown, are not funny at all. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there really is no comic relief in the play. Music is banished. Right. Music is banished. Music is banished. It, and it, if music be the food of love, uh-huh. then, you know, where is the love? Yeah. The feast is ending. Mm. So the thing I suppose we need to look at now as we move forward is uh, the handkerchief. Why is Othello so attached to this handkerchief? It has all these occult significances. It's a very superstitious thing. Seems appropriate, but that's that handkerchief, which has been dipped in the blood of mummies, um, is the thing that Mm -hmm. contributes to his downfall. Desdemona even says, when, when he tells her the origin of the handkerchief, she says, oh, I would to God I had not seen it. Yeah. But I don't know. Why do you think Othello might be so attached to that handkerchief? Honestly, I think it serves the play well if it had no, if it had no history before the play outside of Othello and Desdemona, their relationship. Um, I think it it works. It's so profound as sort of like a symbol of their connection that I think the kind of like layers that I think we should actually talk about next week, the layers that go into kind of like um, giving more meaning to that handkerchief just add to just 
the the pending doom of of their relationship. I'm being a little bit I'm being a little bit redundant. Um, no, it's it's early in the morning. You've done really well. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we can talk about the handkerchief, and then perhaps we could look a little bit more at this idea of um, vengeance. Should Othello really be? Should he have put himself in in the position of being the avenger? Is that right. really his duty? Right. Those are two great things to look forward to in Act Four. Um, when do you re-enter the classroom, Sarah Jane? Is this well, <laughs> go week for you? Next Thursday, and yeah. I heard a rumor that you might also be entering the classroom. I. I am. I'm doing a little substitute bit for as kind of um, a favor to a friend. And medieval history with junior high boys is the task. And I think that I don't quite know how I'm going to handle it. I I'll think take that's it just the cameo role that you need right now. <laughs> You'll be brilliant. I appreciate the encouragement. At this very moment, I think I, I need the encouragement because I keep thinking, why did I say yes to this? Why in the world did I say yes to this? But Hey, before we go, there was one thing I wanted to ask you about um, the show and our listeners. So I actually have a bit of a list of resources that parents or teachers might want to look at. Oh, yeah. Include, you know, other bits of literature from the time, paintings, architecture, all, all the things we've been talking about, critical essays. And I don't know if there's, is there a website where you post those things or? We do. Mostly it's, there's a, there's a close reads listeners page The plays the thing I think has kind of been piggybacking on close reads because I think right now we're kind of seen as the cousin of close reads, which I guess we are the cousin of close reads. Um, so what about this? Do, Sarah Jane, my, based on what I know about you, my hunch is that you don't have what I would call an active social media presence. Is that true? I shun it with <laughs> all my energy. It explains why you're so happy. Um, why don't you, if you are willing, I will post the stuff on your behalf. That's good. That way you can protect your anonymity and we can also acquit potential teachers of Othello. Brilliant. Uh, yeah, I'd really like to share some ideas with, with teachers out there and, and maybe we'll get some back as well. Who knows? But um, social media, yes, it's not so much about anonymity as, as you said, it's more just about joy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I get it. I get it. Okay. So act four next week. Um, yeah. if we thought we had claustrophobia this week, it's only going to get worse, ladies and gentlemen. So hang on. Um, we encourage those of you who are getting acquainted with a fellow for the first time, go, if you can't see a performance live, I think there are a couple of really excellent ones available online. Um, the Lawrence Fishburne version, which you can purchase, I think, through Amazon at a reasonable price. And there's an excellent production by The Globe that is free and accessible via YouTube. Really excellent performances there. And, of course, if you've got your Pelican collection of Shakespeare's plays, 
please read along with us if you would like. Okay, until next week, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Play's The Thing. Check us out next week. We'll look forward to it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.